you take your Bibles this morning and turn to Leviticus chapter 17. We continue on this morning in this um, in this book of Leviticus. We come to the final major section of Leviticus, here in Leviticus chapter 17, often called the Holiness Code, uh, where we begin to focus on the way in which we are called to live holy lives, the children of Israel work, and then bring that to us. One more small section, kind of a summation of the book in the last couple of chapters, but today begins this this uh, very significant uh, and important um, section. Let us read Leviticus chapter 17. Let us hear the word of God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. To this end, that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices, that they may sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and burn the fat for a pleasant aroma to the Lord. So shall they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons, after whom they pour. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, Any one of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. If any one of the house of Israel, or the strangers who sojourn among them, eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and will cut him off from among his people. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Any one of the, also the people of Israel, the strangers who sojourn among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood, its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, You shall not eat of the blood of any creature. For the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off, and every person who eats what dies of itself or is torn by beasts, whether he is native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. In the late 70s and 80s, a movement began um, here in the United States, primarily, I think it's spread other places, known as the Spiritual Disciplines Movement. Men like Dallas Willard and Richard Foster initially begin to write on this subject and begin to present the Christian life and growth in the Christian life as one of a series of spiritual disciplines. Now, they, many of the disciplines they gave are actually in Scripture, things like fasting and prayer, uh, devote, private devotions, um, and Scripture memorization, and a variety of other things like that. They, in their teaching, began to focus on a historical precedent for what they were teaching. They found a lot of historical precedent 
from what they were doing. But their, their historical focus was on Catholic mystics and on German pietists and Methodists and others that are kind of in a different strain of things. And in this, each of these, these different ones they were beginning to focus on, and there's a lot of problems with the spiritual disciplines movement, but the thing we want to focus on this morning is that it began to locate the center of the Christian life itself. Now, while there's a lot of good practices they were pushing, their focus was on, on the individual, the individual pietism, the individual Christian life divorced from the life within the church, divorced within the ordained worship. Now, on the one hand, as I mentioned, a lot of the things that are pushed in this movement are good things. It is good to go home and read your Bible. It's good to go home and pray. There's a time for fasting and prayer. And there's a, we should be memorizing Scripture. But the problem with those types of things is, and we're going to see in our text this morning, is when we start divorcing our personal worship from what God has ordained as our primary worship of Him, our corporate worship, it begins and our focus is on self and our self-practices and what we do, what I do, it inevitably leads to a form of idolatry. We begin to form, the, form Christ and form the Lord into what I want Him to be rather than what He has called us to be. And so the, the, the problem with it is, is where we begin. As we look at Leviticus 17 through 24 over the next several weeks, and whereas up until this point we've been almost always treating a chapter as a whole. We're going to find a lot over the next few weeks. We're going to spend two or three weeks in a single chapter because there's going to be a lot we want to look at in these. We begin to shift. We begin to get into what's known as the holiness code. This how to live holy. This is really coming from our previous study. We go back to Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 10 as the Lord is talking to, to Aaron after the death of Nadab and Abihu. He says that He's going to teach them these things that you were to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. Now, verses chapters 11 through 15 were focused upon that unclean and the clean. Now, 17 through 24 are how to tell the difference between the holy and the common. Now, as we get into this, though, at the beginning of the head of this entire section is a section on worship. It is, as we think about, as we'll unfold in the next few weeks, what we are called to do to live holy lives. It begins with this commands and commands that center around worship. And on the one hand, we'll see a lot of the specifics that were for the children of Israel are not things that we are specifically commanded to today. The general principles here of, of right and proper worship, ordained worship, how we grow in the Lord are unchanged. We want to understand this morning that growth and holiness comes through the ordained worship of God. We'll look at three main points this morning. First of all, ordained worship. Secondly, sacred blood. And thirdly, living through His blood. Now, as we begin this passage this morning, there's that the first section, there's really three sections here. The first one deals with how the, the sacrificing of animals that are desired to eat. The second one is the command not to eat the blood. And the third one kind of brings both of them together and says, if you go out and you hunt an animal, you don't have to sacrifice it, but you still can't eat the blood. Um, pour the blood out into the ground. Now, as we read this first one, this might seem really strange to our ears right off the bat. The Lord says, if you have, if you want to eat your ox or your lamb, your goat, the, the herding animals they would have in the camp, if you want steak tonight, can't just go kill it and eat it. You've got to take it to the tabernacle, sacrifice it before the Lord, give a peace offering to the Lord, and then you 
can eat it. No exceptions. That's the way. If you're going to sacrifice an animal, that is what you are going to do. Now, on the one hand, that probably, wait a second, what? Why, why would we have to do that? How would we even do that in our context? Well, first of all, in that context, in the children of Israel, it really probably wasn't that great of a burden when it was given to them. If you think about it, most of the children of Israel probably didn't even have a herd of animals at that time as they were walking through the desert to sacrifice. Meat was a very, very rare treat for them. And so this was not a daily thing when they had to go to the, the, the tabernacle every day to give a peace offering so they could have their steaks that night. Secondly, the tabernacle is right there. It's right there in the middle of them. They can walk right over to it, sacrifice, and, and everything's good. And as we'll see in a moment, when they get back into the land, this requirement was lifted. But here in this passage, there's two things that I want us to draw attention to. First of all, if they do do this while they're marching through the desert, the Lord says he will cut them off. Anyone who does this, anyone who just killed an animal out in the field and eats it, will be cut off. And the idea is they're going to be cast out. There's no eternal home for them. Secondly, though, is the reason that it is said that, they, that the Lord is going to require them to do this. And that is to prevent their worship of the goat demons. Now, what's a goat demon? Um, the, probably this is from, most, most historians believe that this is a picture of what we see later on. You've all heard of satyrs. You've seen of the half, the half goat, half man, mythical creature. Well, that was actually something that was worshipped back in this era. It was a common false worship, a common pagan worship. Now this is kind of crazy, isn't it? If you're, if you're a, if you look back at this from a distance, and aren't we struck with how odd this is? The Lord has just brought them out of the land of, of Egypt. They have watched water be parted, and they've walked across on dry land. And then they've watched that water crash back down and kill all of Pharaoh and his men. And then they've gotten out in the desert and Food has fallen out of heaven for them to eat every day. They've watched the Lord descend on the mountain and, and, and speak to them through Moses. They've seen, the, they've seen all these wonders. Now they've got the tabernacle done, and they've seen the glory of the Lord descend on the tabernacle. And what are they doing? They're going out in the desert and they're worshiping goat demons. On the one hand, I think this just, our first thought is, how? Why? Why would they continue to do these things? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons for it, but the first thing we want to think about is the fact that the Lord is calling them out of that. Despite all the Lord has done, they're still following in idolatry. And so he gives these commands that are really grounded on the first two commandments. The point is, don't have any other gods. Don't worship goat demons. And don't uh, and worship God alone. And so the point of not allowing them to sacrifice the desert is to, first and foremost, stop them from actually having a sacrifice to a goat demon. Now, part of this is tied to the idea that we'll see later on in Scripture of eating meat that is sacrificed to idols. The point is, don't go out here, sacrifice your animal to a goat demon, and then go eat it. Worship the Lord alone. And the reason this is, first of all, the point here is because the, on the one hand, they shouldn't be doing it regardless, but if they're out here in the field, if, they, if that is their mindset, if their desire is, I want to go worship a goat demon, but I know that if I do that, everybody's going to be mad at me or I may get kicked out of, my, out of the, 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 um, the, the camp. They go out in the desert, sacrifice this animal, pour the, dirt, the, the, the blood out to the goat demon, and then bring the animal back in and eat it, and nobody would be the wiser. And so part of the reason this is, it's just kind of a fencing of the law. 
God is telling the people, okay, you're not even going to kill an animal out there, so you don't even have the opportunity to worship the goat demon. Now, with that said, does that ensure that everybody who sacrifices at the temple is going to do so in a way that is not a, a false worship? Well, the reality is, is a person who really wants to worship the goat demon still may have that in the heart as they bring their sacrifice to the tabernacle to be sacrificed there. Isn't this the point of Amos? Amos tells the people, that the Lord says, I don't even want to smell your sacrifices. Why? You're bringing them to me. You're bringing your sacrifice in the temple. But your hearts aren't right. Your hearts are in rebellion. The point is, is that on the one hand, yes, it is true that when our hearts are corrupt, even when we are worshiping where we're supposed to worship, does not mean that our worship is acceptable. It can still be wrong there. But here's the thing I want us to notice. The Lord, although that is ultimately a point, and we see that throughout the book of, throughout the Old Testament, that's largely the point of the prophets. Yet, the Lord doesn't say, okay, well, then you still do whatever you want to do, and I hope your hearts are okay. Why? Because the more we remove ourselves from the ordained way that God has commanded us to do, the more likely we are to worship in such a manner. Here's the picture with with this whole idea of a goat demon. So there's some people that want to worship the goat demons. They they want to go outside the camp and sacrifice to the the local pagan demons. Now, if if that's their mind, their heart, whatever they're wanting to do, their heart is going to be corrupt even as they bring their sacrifice to the tabernacle. But see, here's the thing. There's a lot of people that's not necessarily their heart. But the more they're spending time around that, the more they're out here in the desert, the more they're seeing the pagan deities, the more the, the, this, this attitude is being cultivated within the community. The more neighbors that are doing it, the more it's going to be, to be a temptation for them to do it. The more they are kept from that, the more likely they are not to actually fall into that. And so that is why this command is here. Now, at the same time, this command was given, and it was a very temporary command. In Deuteronomy 12, as the Lord is giving them instructions for going into the land, this specific command is very clearly abrogated. Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 20 says, When the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has promised you, and you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat, you may eat meat, whenever you desire. If the place the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock which the Lord has given you as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your towns whenever you desire. Just as the gazelle or deer is eaten, so you may eat of it. The unclean and the the clean alike may eat of it. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. We'll come back to that last verse in a moment, but I want to go back to this first section here. The Lord says, when you go into the land, you're going to enlarge you have this big nation. You're no longer going to have the tabernacle right there where you just walk down the street and bring your sacrifice and everything's good. You're going to have to actually, there's going to come a time where it's going to be several days to get to the tabernacle. He says, when that happens and you want to eat meat, you crave meat, then do it the same way that he gives the command in the pat- our text this morning for, for the animals that are hunted. Eat it. Enjoy it. Pour the blood out. Treat the blood with respect. And we'll think about that more in our second point. But go ahead and worship. Now, the point of this, though, if we go back to our text this morning, is that even though he has given them this 
opportunity, there's still a perpetual nature of what is said in, in this passage. They're still not to worship Dodeus or any other pagan deity with this sacrifice. That is a statue forever throughout the generations. They don't worship false gods. Now, the question we need to ask is, what does this mean for us? How many of you today are really tempted after the service to go worship a goat demon today? Probably none of us. Probably most of us haven't even heard of goat demons until we started with this passage. Um, that's not really all that pressing. But does that mean that this doesn't have stuff for us? Well, the core issue is not just merely goat demons. It is the issue of idolatry. It is the worship of the false gods in general. Now, probably nobody here is even any more anxious this morning to go back to their home and pull off this a golden statue off the shelf and start bowing down and praying to it. And so it might be tempted to say, well, this is not an issue. We're not idolatrous. But the reality is we are idolatrous. Our hearts, as Calvin put it, are idol factories. We make idols all the time. They may not be golden calves. They may not be goat demons. But we all worship idols all the time. A couple of main things we can think about, first of all, is the idea in which we constantly try to make God into our own image. We constantly try to worship God as we want Him to be, rather than as He has revealed Himself. That is a form of idolatry. We're not worshiping the, the one true and living God. We're worshiping that which we want to worship and calling it God. Just as when Aaron built the golden calf, he said, This is Yahweh, your God who brought you out of Egypt. We invent we invent ideas we want God to be and we make God in that image. We also see in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul calls the church not to practice idolatry and he links it with covetousness. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul says when we covet, which is the 10th commandment, we are actually committing idolatry. Why? Because our say, I'm saying the most important thing to me is that. Whatever that is. Now, covetousness, I would, I think I've heard me, most of you me say many times, I think is the, is the American religion, isn't it? Turn on the TV for 30 seconds and you will have somebody telling you to covet something. Every commercial, here's why you need to covet this. Every, everything we do, this is what, one of the problems are, but like, a lot of positive social media. One of the big negatives of social media is what? It is us presenting a perfect reality so that others will covet what I have. Or we get on there to covet what other people have. But Paul says, under inspiration, that is idolatry. Now we can go on and on with this. The point, the main thing I want to see this morning is that we are have not escaped idolatry gone from goat demons to other forms of idolatry. But idolatry still very much permeates the very being of who we are. We are wrapped up in idolatry in so many different things. So I think we can go back to our passage this morning and then think about what is the antidote to idolatry. How do we resist idolatry? this passage in Leviticus chapter 7, the issue is the ordained worship. Going to the tabernacle and worshiping the Lord as they were commanded to worship. Now we've been noting throughout 
our study through Leviticus, how much Hebrews parallels our passage. How much Hebrews, it, 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 it may, be, may very well be a, an exposition of Leviticus. It's interesting, as you go through this passage over the past couple weeks, you've noted how much the, the entirety of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10 are focused on chapter of chapter 16, the Day of Atonement in Leviticus, showing us how what we have in Christ is greater than what they went through. But as we move through that section, and now we get into Leviticus chapter 17, it moves immediately to worship. Don't worship anywhere but where God has ordained. And if we go back to chapter 10 in Hebrews, Paul again turns to worship. Before he moves into call to faith and Christian lives and all these kind of things over the next few chapters, he begins in verse 25 by calling us to not neglect to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What does he say? He said our temptation, our inclination is to turn to other things. But how do we grow? How do we grow in our understanding of the atonement? How do we grow in our right worship? It is what? To come together, to meet together, and to edify one another, to grow in grace through our corporate worship. On the one hand, our worship, what, what is the ordained worship of the Lord, has changed radically since the commissioning of Leviticus 17. We no longer come to the tabernacle. We no longer sacrifice but the idea of ordained worship, that God has given us a, a way to worship Him that pulls us away from idolatry is still very much at the heart of who we are as Christians. Because what we see in Scripture is the more that we are drawn, drawn together in corporate worship, we are drawn away from ourselves. We started off by talking about spiritual disciplines. The problem with them is they allow us to begin to meditate upon a God who is not God. They allow us to begin to personalize, make things about the way I want the world to be rather than what God has made it to be. And so the preaching of the Word and the, and the Lord's Supper and the other sacraments, they draw us to Him. They turn our eyes away from ourselves as, as we admonish one another, as we stir one another up to good works. We're more and more reminded that it's not about what I want it to be, about my idolatrous thoughts, about my idolatrous visions, but it's about what the Lord has, has commanded, what He has made. And it begins to break down our tendency towards idolatry. Now, if we go back to our text this morning, on the one hand, there's a seeming jump here, but I think it actually flows out of this. We still in our next section and it turns to the issue of blood. There's, on the one hand, you're supposed to bring the sacrifice in, but when you do eat this, do not eat the blood. Do not drink the blood. This is a commandment um, for now on, he says, to all, the, to all their generations. Now, this is a, a challenging one, but one that we need to spend a, a moment about. In, well, in Deuteronomy 12, we see that, we, as we read a moment ago, we see the abrogation of this first section. So we give the land, you want to eat meat, but it says, but still, you can't eat the blood. It goes on and clarifies in verses 23 and 25 that this statement here is still very much in effect. Now, why is this? Now, we looked at this a few weeks ago because this was at least summarized earlier in the book of Leviticus, but this is 
although this command you see throughout Scripture, especially the Old Testament, this is probably the most clear statement of why the children of Israel were not to eat blood. And so let's take a moment to think about this. You see this, the reason given in verses 11 through 12, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any strangers who sojourns among you eat blood. Now what's the issue? Well, there's, there's two reasons that are given here as to why they are not to eat the blood. The first is the connection between blood and life. The Lord says that the life of the animal, or really the further the life of anyone, is in the blood. And the point is, when you shed the blood, you're taking a life. And, and the command then is don't is, is treat that with respect. Now, I really briefly consider naming this point or even the sermon, meat is murder. Um, it's the common slogan in our, in our world today. The idea, because why? Because it's kind of partially the point that they made here. When you take an animal's life, you're killing an animal. And the point is, is that is a serious thing. It's not to be taken lightly. You're taking the life of a living thing. This is something that doesn't happen until the fall. The only reason animal life is taken is because humans sin. And so now death has come upon this world, both human and animal. And when you take a life, you take it. Now, the reason I don't like the, the, the meat is murder is because the point is it's not murder. It is taking a life, but it is a different sort of life. And so the point here is where you are to actually take it for the children of Israel is both for sacrifice and for food. For us, it would just be food. But the other side of the coin is, is you're to treat that with respect. I think this is something we as, as 21st century Christians need to think about for a moment. On the one hand, uh, many many of us here, some here may be vegetarian or vegan or, or not eat animals. Others may be, or a lot of us are very voracious meat eaters. The point, though, is, is that on the one hand, we need to be careful not to go to the point where we worship the animal. On the other side of the coin, though, we need to remember that we need to treat animal life with respect. One of the biggest examples of this would be like trophy hunting. The idea of killing an animal just in order so I can have a, 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 a trophy on my wall. That is not respecting the creation of God. That is taking a life for no reason. It's not benefiting my life. It's not helping me live. That is being, that is mistreating creation. It's mistreating life. Now this leads into the second point here is the, the main reason that God gave animals the, the to take the life is for sacrifice. It's to teach that our life is dependent upon the death of another. Now, as we bring these two points together, the idea then is this, that every time they killed an animal, whether it was for sacrifice or eating or a combination of the two, the point was for them to remember a life had to be given for me to live. Whether it's atoning for my sins or nourishing my body, in either way, something died so that I might have life. And that's why the respect for the blood is given here. And that is why this is important. Now the question though again comes back to, what does this mean for us? Now this one's a little bit more challenging for us to think about in our current situation. The main reason for this is found in, in Acts chapter 15. 
and verses 28 through 29. For those that are in Sunday school, we looked at this a little bit this morning as well. The, the Council of Jerusalem and the this this where they they had established this need to not eat the blood for the early church. Now the background of this is for those that weren't here is there was debate as the gospel is going out and spreading from the Jewish church into the Gentile community. There begins to be questions. Diet is a big one of them, and other issues of of what is required of what are we supposed to keep of the Old Testament law? What are we free from under the gospel? And so they met together, and they get done with this council, and all the elders and, this, and the, and the uh, apostles, and they, they discuss, and they come together, and, they, and they, they put out their decision. In verse 28 it says, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you do well. Now, what is the, the point here? So there's, there's basically four things that are given, and really only three things. There is the meat sacrificed idol, which reflects actually our first point. That's what the whole point of sacrificing the desert and going and eating the, eating the animals, eating meat sacrificed idols. That's where that whole idea comes from. And so it's the first thing we see in our passage. Then we see the the, um, the, meat, the eating of the blood, which is in both this abstain from meat and from meat that has been strangled. The point is when an animal is strangled, the blood doesn't run out of it. It coagulates, stays the meat, and so you end up eating blood. And then finally, sexual immorality, which is our next chapter we'll be getting into next week in chapter 18. So in reality, these commands come from our text. They are the beginning of the holiness code. And how are we to see them in light of them? Now, the question that the first question to ask is, do these things remain in perpetual obedience for Christians today? Well, we can see with the first one here, meat sacrificed idols, very clearly in the writings of Paul, this was not intended to be a, a perpetual command, even by the Jerusalem Council. I think we can see that in that language of no greater burden. The point is, this is a burden. This is something extra that's being added to them. That's not necessarily a requirement scripturally, but it was needed to bring peace in the church at that moment. Even when Paul says that it's okay to eat meat to the idols, what does he say? He says, but if it offends your brother, don't do it. And the early church did this with the meat with the, the meat with blood as well. They, while the, there was a heavy influence of Judaism, and the Jewish tradition, they usually refrained from eating blood. But as the church spread throughout the Gentile nations, this quickly dropped along with the meat sacrificed idols, saying it's really it's not important for us today. But the question is, okay, given that, that maybe it's okay for us to eat blood, though most of us here probably don't eat blood, and we don't sacrifice our own animals or, or, or kill our animals for food, we buy our meat at the store, things like that. What can we think about this? Why is this still important? Well, the, the importance of the blood is really seen in the other side of it in the New Testament. As we think about this for a moment, on the one hand, the children of Israel are told, told don't drink or eat blood. Yet, what are we told in the New Testament? Christ comes and he says, take, this is my blood, take and drink. In John chapter 6, he says, if you want eternal life, what do you have to do? You have to drink my blood and eat my body. John chapter 6 this morning and towards the end of the passage here we see we see this point made John John says but if, you, if you're going to have eternal life we must drink drink the blood because whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood 
has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. I think this is one of the things we see that, that the shadow and type. Blood is withdrawn in the Old Testament, not allowed to be partaken of, yet in the New Testament, at least figuratively speaking, it is given to us through the blood of Christ. Not just in the picture of sacrifice of Christ pouring it out on the altar, but actually in the statement of Christ saying, you must actually drink my blood, you must eat my flesh. Picture here then ultimately, think about this, the idea of blood being life. Christ is saying, if you want to live, you must live through my blood. How do you think about what this says for that? How this picture comes together? On the one hand, we need to be very careful. Rome is taking John chapter 6 in this passage, along with the commission of the Lord's Supper, to say that we must literally, physically eat the true blood of Christ, the true body of Christ. That's the developer doctrine of transubstantiation, saying that the bread and the wine actually changes what it is. It becomes the real body and the real blood of Christ. I think that's what's going on. In fact, we go back to our text with the larger context in John chapter 6 to pick the, the main topic is faith. We do not actually literally take Christ's blood and drink it. We literally take his flesh and eat it. But spiritually, through faith, we receive of the benefits of him just as we need to have that to live so Christ gives us of himself in order that we might this is the really the fulfillment of the picture we've given the withholding of blood picturing what we need Christ giving us his blood as what we have now part of this comes down to how it is handled stop and think for a moment in the Old Testament was the blood given you know, every time that animal was killed, what happened? Someone took the life of the animal. Part of the reason that there's respect needed to be given to the blood was the animal didn't walk up to the person and say, I want to die today, please kill me and eat me. No, the animal, think about it for a moment, as you're going to sacrifice, there's probably a lot of bleeding of animals. They're crying. They see, they, they, the smell of death is in the air. And their life is getting ready to be taken. Their throat cut and their blood drained out that life taken from the animal and that's part of the point of treat that life with respect you are taking the life of this animal don't mistreat it conversely though when Christ comes what does he say no one takes my life from me but I freely give it when he commissions the Lord's Supper he says this is my blood I give to you this is my body that I give to you. Here in John 6, he says, I give my blood, and it is life. The point is, we see this change, this shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament, as we see the fulfillment of these pictures, of these types and shadows. It is the reminder that life does come from the blood, but ultimately it comes from the blood. No one takes from him, but it's freely given to all those who come to faith. And so we grow in the Lord as we receive of Christ. 
the picture then is that the supper is the outward sign of the inward reality is the language we often use. The point is, is that the inward reality is that Christ gives himself to us. We, by faith, receive his body and his blood. And through him, we have eternal life. The supper is the outward sign where by through a picture, we drink of this cup, we eat of the bread, picturing to us that inward reality that just as surely and truly as I eat of this bread and drink of this cup, so the benefits of Christ are really and truly given to me. I have the blood of Christ. I have the body of Christ. I have been given life through his blood. Now this is what we see both of these sections in our text come together. We are made holy by the atonement, by the sacrifice of Christ. In the text, the people were in which we figured it were made holy by the sacrifice of wolves and goats. Yet if we see this call over the next few chapters here in Leviticus to live holy, to live lives that reflect what we've already been declared to be. The point is we first and foremost grow as we worship the Lord the way He has been ordained. If we go back to our introduction and think about spiritual disciplines, there's so many things that we can think about. Can't I grow better if I just go to my prayer closet? Can't I grow better if I just fast and pray? Can't I, won't I grow if I give charity, if I do all kinds of acts of service, if I memorize scripture, all of these different things, we want to think of them as the ways in which we can grow. There's a time and place for all of them. But our primary growth comes as our eyes are away from itself as it's grounded in his ordained worship the word and sacrament. The reason we practice the Lord's Supper every week is part of this. The Supper keeps us centered on Christ as well. It keeps reminding us that our life, the very fact that we have life to live, that we have eternal life, is because his shed blood was spilled for us. That he gives us his blood so that we might have. If we move into the next section, we're going to see largely the point of this entire section found in Leviticus chapter 19. In verse 2, the Lord says, Speak to the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, This is the call. We are to live holy lives. But how do we do How do we grow? 17 to 24 is the picture of growth. 17 is how we get there. We worship in the ways we can grow. We grow through worship. The Baptist Catechism in question 80 asks this question. What are the outward means by which Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? The answer, the outward and ordinary means by which Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word of God, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer, all which are means made effectual to the elect for salvation. And the word ordinance here is what we put a lot of emphasis on. Ordinance just means ordained. The point is the ordinance of God, the, the preaching of the word, the reading of the word, the Lord's Supper, the prayer, and all this in the context of corporate things as well, is the ordained means by which we grow. Why? Because they call us away from our self-indulgence. 
They bring us out of our self-righteousness and our idolatry. They turn our eyes away from what we want things to be and turn them to our Savior. As we hear the Word of God, reminded of what Scripture says, not what I wanted to say. As we see the, the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that I am here because Christ has given me life. I am a sinner. I cannot take any credit for what I have done, but I have been redeemed by Him. And as I'm tempted to stumble under the weight of my own sin, I'm reminded, yes, but Christ has given life. He has redeemed. He has made me whole. I have life because of what Christ has done. And so as we look at this text this morning and we contemplate this picture, the first thing to remember is, how do we turn from idolatry? Turn to proper worship. But most importantly, proper worship is to turn us to God. It is to turn us to the sacrifice of Christ the one who has given himself for us so that we might have life.